Okay, we're racing towards Easter. We're in a series on uh, the cross. You can find out all about it, burlingtonbaptist.org.uk forward slash the cross. All of it's there, including the sermons that we've had over these last uh, three weeks. A couple of weeks ago, we were thinking about how the cross didn't just suddenly appear on the horizon, but the cross was always in God's heart, something he'd always planned, something that was always there in God's consciousness that he'd send his son even before he made the world. And we saw how we get nods and winks right the way through the Old Testament uh, about the cross. There's no surprise for those who are are reading with an open heart and open eyes. And then two weeks ago we went up really close, watching, watching what happened, listening to what was said, seeing who was there, and drawing on the truth that we can find in that place, close to where Jesus Then last week Simon helped us think through about what it means to be those that are walking, walking the way of the cross. Now we're moving on, at least chronologically, to join ranks with those who are beginning to look back and they are wondering about the cross. They knew that the cross was everything. They knew that they were forever changed because of the cross. But how would they explain it? How could they help people understand what the cross of Jesus was really all about? And the New Testament, in fact, the rest of it after Jesus, is essentially trying to help people understand what the cross of Christ is all about. And in their wonderings, they began to use different uh, uh, metaphors, different pictures, different images to help people understand what the cross was all about. And I guess we would do the same. If we're wanting to say something to someone about something we know they don't understand yet, we will use something that they do understand, a point of contact, a frame of reference, to illustrate, to point to what they don't yet understand. It's no good starting a conversation with with things people don't understand. Explain this to me. And you open your mouth and they don't understand the first thing that you've said. So the, the early writers were thinking, what do people understand that they can begin to use to point to the cross that perhaps people don't yet fully understand? And so there are a number of these images that the Bible uses to help us understand what the cross was all about. The first was the temple. Now, the temple in Jerusalem dominated the skyline. It was massive. And uh, wherever you looked, you could see the temple. Not only did it dominate the skyline, but it dominated everyone's lives. All the holidays, all the feasts, all the celebrations were all stacked up around celebrations in the temple. Your greatest days, your biggest days out, were trips from the country into the city to go to the temple. The whole of their lives revolved around the temple because of what the people knew. You see, the people instinctively knew what I think we all know, is that when push comes to shove, we haven't lived up to God's perfect law. There's no one here who is perfect in thought, word, and deed. And if you find someone who thinks they are perfect in thought, word, and deed, ask them if they're proud of that. And they'll say, yes, and you've got them. 
with the sin of pride. Because all of us are not where we should be in thought and word and deed. And the people knew that they were never able to be that. So they desperately needed a way to wipe the slate of their lives clean. They desperately needed a way after they knew that they'd failed, knew that they'd made a mistake, knew that they hadn't lived up to the standard. They needed a way to wipe the slate clean to have a fresh start. And the Old Testament through the temple provided such a way. You would go to the temple with what you had failed with uh, and you would get an animal that was perfect and you would confess your sin you're wrong over the animal, so as the wrong that is in you was transferred onto the animal, then the animal was sacrificed, and the priest would say, your slate is clean. Uh, And as you walked away from the temple, you knew you'd been given a brand new start. The trouble was, they knew really in their hearts that at the end of the day, the blood of bulls and goats was not going to do the deal. Because they knew at the end of the day, the next day they would probably fail as well. And they would need to go again to the temple. And that each day lots of animals would be sacrificed. And at the end of a very busy day for the priests, all the priests knew they would be back for another long day as the cycle kept repeating itself. But that's why they were so excited about the death of Jesus. Because as they looked at the temple, something they did understand, and they began to look at the cross of Jesus, they realized that when Jesus died, he was dying for all that was wrong, once and for all. And uh, that's what he wrote about, this writer to the Hebrews, just a few verses later. But when Christ appeared, when Christ came on the scene and offered for all time one sacrifice for everything that's wrong, for all sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now you only sit down when? When you finished. Jesus sat down because it was finished, it was done, it was over. The death of Jesus was the sacrifice that would deal with all sin. It's why John the Baptist said, look, look, this Jesus that's coming, he, he's like the Lamb of God. He's like the one in the temple who's going to be killed. And instead of needing to kill animal after animal, year after year, decade after decade, Jesus is going to do it once and for all. Now, I agree. That what happens in a temple with animals that are killed is a miles away from our culture where we eat meat without thinking about how it got there uh, and so on. The whole thing is just a a million miles away from buzzing Ipswich on a snowy Sunday. Or is it? You see, there's not one person in this room who hasn't got something for which they'd like the slate wiped clean. Nobody here. Nobody here who doesn't have something from which they desperately want a fresh new start. Nobody that hasn't got an area of their lives where they wish they could feel clean. Jesus died on the cross to wipe your slate clean. And and as they looked at what happened in the temple, that temple image... They began to see, wow, what's happened in the temple all those years is a brilliant signpost, a brilliant pointer to what Jesus did on the cross. It's a lovely feeling being clean, isn't it? 
especially after a grubby, sticky day. Clean clothes, clean sheets, the smell uh, of fresh, clean hair, whatever it might be for you. So much more to feel clean when your inside is grubby and sticky and maybe a bit stinky too. The cross makes that possible to wipe your slate clean. But there's so much more that they wanted to say. They knew that as they looked at the temple and they looked at the cross, they could see that, that what Jesus did on the cross was, was what was happening in the temple. But, but then as they thought about the cross, they could see so much more that was going on. And as they rushed out of the temple, they were immediately into the marketplace. And there in the marketplace, a bit like John Lewis, you could buy and sell uh, everything there, including, unlike John Lewis, as far as I'm aware, including people. People were there in the marketplace offering themselves to be sold. You see, in those days, just like today, people get into debt. But in those days, there was no help, there was no system, there was no protection. So how were you going to pay your debt? And in order to pay your debt, people would go to the market and they'd hang around their necks the price of the debt that they owed somebody. And then if someone came along who was willing to pay that debt, then you would go and be that person's slave. That was how it worked. And you would sell yourself into slavery to pay this debt because you knew you were trapped and there was nothing you could do about it. The price they paid to buy you was called the ransom price. Jesus said, I'll give my life as a ransom price for many. Now, what's the marketplace got to do with us, ancient Israel? Where does it connect with our lives? Well, this is the question. What debt hangs around your neck? What is the power that controls you from which you cannot free yourself? What holds you trapped that you need to be released from? That's your debt. And until that debt is paid, you will never be free. You track in, understand, you with me? Three people with me, that's just fantastic. Thank you. I feel lonely in a crowd. You see, our debts are way more than financial. So many things enslave us. Some of us are trapped by our fears, others caught by our regrets, still others enslaved by our memories, habits, resentments, addictions, anything that we can't break free from and they hang around our neck and we need someone to pay for them, we need someone to break us free. And just like those first century folk in the market, they were there because they were utterly helpless. They were there because they knew there was nothing they could possibly do to get themselves out of the mess that they were now in. And we are like that. There are things, and it doesn't matter what you do, you can't escape from it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably just fibbing and kidding yourself because we've all got things that trap us and we know by ourselves we cannot escape them. We cannot get out of them. And we stand there helpless like in the marketplace. Jesus died to break the power that controls you. How cool is that? That's the ransom price. 
That's the ransom price. And instead of buying you into slavery, remember that's what happened at the market, someone would pay your price and your debt would be cleared, but then you were forever in the debt of the person who paid that money and you became their slave. But think about this other verse in the Bible. If the Son, Jesus, it says, sets you free, what happens? If Jesus pays your ransom price... Do you forever become his slave? Well, kind of. But what it actually says, if the Son sets you free, he's going to let you go. You'll be free indeed. Well, one or two people interested in that. Uh, And that's the remarkable thing. Very occasionally in ancient Israel, someone very benevolent would pay the price around your neck and say, I don't want you as a slave, you're free to go. And they said, that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was paying the price. He was breaking the power that controls you. He was cancelling the debt that is yours. So, hey, clean slate, cancelled debt. But that wasn't enough. As they thought about the cross, they thought, hey, there's way more going on than than first met the eye. It's not just about a clean slate, the temple image. It's not just about uh, Jesus paying our debts, breaking the power that controls us more. And they used the image of family to help them understand it. You see, everyone here knows the pain and sadness of losing someone. Many of us know really, really, really in the depths of our being. Keep tweeting, guys. That's fantastic. I should have put my phone on silent, but I didn't. So let's, let's keep the tweets going. Um, deep in our hearts, we all carry scars where we've lost something, or probably more important, lost someone. We all know what it is to have had someone close and now they're far away. And it marks us, doesn't it? It, it, it somehow puts a scar on our lives. And the Bible says, actually, we all carry a scar like that. The Bible says we were all made to know God and love him, and yet now we're far away from him, separated from him. There's this great distance. And it's like all of us carry a pain, a scar, a stain on our lives. And as they began to think about the cross and what God was doing on the cross and, uh, and as they, uh, they began to listen again afresh to what Jesus had taught them and begin to understand it, they said it's like this. They said, on the cross, it's like Jesus is reconciling, is bringing us back to himself. Where there's that scar, that wound, that loss, that brokenness, it's like Jesus is bringing us back. And it was like this great picture from heaven that somehow as God stretched out his, as Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross, somehow he's stretching out one arm up to heaven and one arm out to the world and saying, I want you back, I want you back And that's what the cross is all about, to bring you into the family. And Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. When I'm lifted up on the cross, I'm going to draw people into my family. That's what you saw today. That's what this story is all about. It's about God drawing people into his family. We were made to be in his family and he draws us in because of the cross. Never has that been so more important in a society that's as broken as ours. Never have people felt more isolated. Never has it been so hard maybe for families to hold it together. So many relationships are struggling to make the journey. We long to be in families. That's how we're made. That's how we're wired. That's what we were born for. And yet we've been separated from God's family. It's created this scar in our hearts. And do you know what? That's why you're restless. That's why when you've got everything, it feels like you still haven't got enough. 
That's why you're yearning for something more when you're not sure what that more is. God wants us in his family. But it's a bit of an issue, really, about you being in God's family. And that's you're not good enough. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Really? Are you good enough for God's family? No. And so as they tried to understand what was going on, a temple, clean slate, a, a, a marketplace, breaking the powers that control us, a family being drawn back into God, as they began to think about the cross and what it was all about, they're kind of going, well, how can we, how can we? How can we be drawn back into God's family? Because we know that at the end of the day, there are things that we've all done wrong that we're going to have to own up to. We're going to have to take responsibility for. When, when the great role of what was done and what wasn't done, when someone says, who did that? It's your hand that will have to go up. Don't you hate that moment in school? Who did that? We know at the end of time, when all the accounts are settled, there'll be things that will be said, and my hand will have to go up. And you'll all be looking. Don't worry, I'll be looking too. Different things, our hands will... And we'll know we're guilty. We know we can't be part of this perfect, heavenly family. And so they, they, they began to think about what Jesus was doing on the cross. And they began to understand that what was happening on the cross was more now the image of the law court. It was like the judge who was passing sentence, who was saying you're all guilty, was the same person who would carry on himself the punishment. The judge would offer the sentence and pay for it himself. You see, on the cross, God passed sentence. Sin always destroys. Sin always separates. Sin always ruins. And there on the cross, God took the sentence. Sin destroying him, ruining him, separating him from God. He took it all on himself. He himself, the writers towards the end of the New Testament would say, in utter amazement, he himself bore our sins. He took the consequences on himself. The judge paying the fine, the magistrate taking the sentence. Jesus died to take the punishment that was ours. And do you know they hadn't quite finished? They said, this cross, it's like a diamond. It's multifaceted. You look at it this way and you see a truth. You look at it another way, you see another truth. Whichever way, which way, there's truths oozing out of this cross about who God is and and, and what he's like. A clean slate, the power that controls us, broken, brought into the family, our punishment taken by him. And one last image that they wrote about in the Bible, uh, and perhaps there's a few more actually, but one last image for today that they wrote about in the Bible, and this is just genius. I love it. it. Paul starts writing about the cross being a victory parade. It was the most unlikely image for the cross, because it didn't look like a victory on the face of it. And you see, it was another image that they knew really well. When a a nation would go and fight another nation, if they'd win, they'd come back with all the spoils and they'd walk through the streets, raising up high all the treasures that they'd taken from the enemy. They'd bring all the chariots that they'd captured from the enemy. And then they'd bring the prisoners and then the king and queen from the nation and they'd (coughs) parade them through the streets as a celebration of everything that had been won. And Paul... A Roman, uh, Jewish, b- travelled in a Roman context, in a Roman empire. 
They knew all about these spectacles of Rome parading everything that had been won. And Paul uses this image. He says, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus on the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. What's Paul saying? He's saying somehow that the cross itself is like a victory parade. And yet there seems absolutely nothing victorious about the cross. But wait, think about it for a moment. This is just pure genius. You see, there on the cross, Jesus was parading everything that he was conquering. He was conquering pain and suffering. He was conquering sin and rebellion. He was conquering separation from God, loneliness, isolation, rejection. He was conquering every demonic power that would set itself up against the purpose of God. He was conquering death itself and grief and mourning and crying and pain. Every physical agony, every emotional agony, every spiritual agony. And there on the cross, he's parading all of it that he's defeating. It's a brilliant image, isn't it? Because then at the very end, he doesn't die with a whimper, but he dies with a shout. You see, Jesus died to triumph over everything. And you look at the cross, and the cross has paraded on it everything that's ugly and disgusting and degrading and demoralizing and desperate and hopeless and everything that that ruins life and messes up the world. Jesus is parading it all there. Why? Because he's triumphing over all of it. And he dies not with a whimper, but with a shout. And he says, hey, it's finished. I've done that. I've conquered it all. The victory parade. One day, I'll get excited about that. (laughs) And so they were trying to help people understand the cross. And they go, it's a bit like the temple. (laughs) Don't know which one touches you this morning. It's a bit like the temple. You can have your slate wiped clean. A brand new start. Is that what you need today? It's a bit like the marketplace. The power, the debt that's hanging around your neck that you can't free yourself from. The cross breaks the power that controls you. Or the family, you feel lonely, isolated, lost. And suddenly those words that Jesus stretches out a hand to heaven, a hand to you to bring you into his family. But you feel guilty about that. How can you, with all that's wrong in you, get close to a loving, perfect God? And then you realize that all your wrong, every lie, every lust, every greed, every horse word, hard word, all the lot, it's all on Jesus. And you go, wow, he's taken everything that stops me coming into his presence. And then you see the victory parade. That you can be part of a journey that's not defeat but ends in victory. Hey, we know how this show ends. We know how it ends. And we're on the winning side. Everything conquered. In the end, even death itself. Let's pray.